Hey listeners, I recently launched an ad-free Serial Napper feed so that you can enjoy the podcast without interruptions. Elevate your Serial Napper listening experience by joining my Patreon community and get yourself an ad-free feed on Spotify. For just $2 a month, you can become a member today and unlock ad-free episodes while still supporting the podcast. It's super easy. Just visit Serial Napper on your Spotify app and click the button at the top that says exclusive episodes for subscribers. Don't use Spotify for your listening? No problem. Just visit patreon.com slash Serial Napper to get your episodes ad-free and enjoy uninterrupted storytelling while you get your naps in. Mother's Day is almost here. Have you found that truly special sentimental gift for your mom yet? Don't worry, I got you. MyLifeInABook.com is a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Here's how it works. Every week, MyLifeInABook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature And MyLifeInABook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges that she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and your children can treasure forever. Your mom has given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. I loved this idea so much that I've started my own My Life in a Book for my children to have. The thought of my son and daughter being able to learn about my life story as they grow into their own adulthood is truly special. It's been an enjoyable journey of self-reflection for me too, with questions like, which one event made the greatest impact on your life? It's brought back memories I didn't even know I had. I love it, and I know your mother will too. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SERIALNAPPER at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code SERIALNAPPER for 10% off today. Hey everyone, my name is Nikki Young and this is Serial Napper, an international true crime podcast. I'm back with another true crime story to lull you to sleep or perhaps to give you nightmares. Tonight, I'm retelling the story of what is quite possibly France's most notorious true crime case. Wealthy socialite Ghislaine Marshall was discovered murdered in the cellar of her beautiful mansion. In what was a very violent attack, she had been stabbed 20 times. Yet somehow, she apparently managed to write the name of her killer on the cellar wall in her own blood. Police had their perpetrator. Case closed, right? Wrong. There would be several inconsistencies with this theory, including a grammatical error in her bloody message that many thought that the victim would never make as she was an avid reader and writer. So, did the killer write the message in Ghislaine's blood in an attempt to frame someone else? I'll let you decide what you think. 
because while the murder happened back in the early 90s, there are new developments and an ongoing court battle happening right now in 2022. This story reads like a murder mystery novel. Unfortunately, it's very real, and the consequences to the victims have been very real. We're going to start our story with Omar Radad, since this case has been dubbed the Omar Radad Affair pretty much all around the world. Omar was born in Morocco in July of 1962, and this is where he would spend the majority of his time growing up. His father would move to Europe when Omar was just a baby so that he could work as a gardener and send money back home to his family in Morocco. Omar was one of six children, so instead of going to school, he would have to help out around the house and work any side jobs that he could to earn money for his family. When Omar would grow up, he would decide to follow in his father's footsteps, and he would move to Mougin, France to work as a gardener as well. He thoroughly enjoyed living in France and his job with gardening, even though he spoke practically no French and he was completely illiterate. His first gardening job was a part-time position working on the property of a woman by the name of Madame Pascal. It was while working here that he caught the attention of Madame Pascal's neighbor, Guilaine Marchal. Guilaine really liked Omar's work, so she asked him if he could work in her garden on his days off from Madame Pascal's. Omar was very thankful for the extra work and income, so of course he agreed. As you can imagine, Guilaine was a very wealthy woman with a beautiful home, yard, and many servants. She was born in 1926 to parents who were involved in the World War II resistance and were caught and deported. Sadly, her father would actually die during the deportation, and her mother would raise her alone. She didn't grow up in a wealthy family. She knew exactly what poverty felt like. When she was a very young woman, she married a man and had a son, but the marriage didn't last long, and they would ultimately divorce. But she would meet a wealthy man named Jean-Pierre Marchal, who owned a company that provided automobile parts all around the world. The pair fell in love, and they were married, and Guilaine became wealthy almost overnight. When Jean-Pierre died, Guilaine inherited everything. She got the company, the house, and all of the money that came with it. She would spend half of her time at her primary residence in Switzerland, and the other half at her vacation property in France. You know you're incredibly wealthy when you can afford a gardener for your vacation home that you're only at half the time. Ghislaine was a local socialite. She would fill her days sipping on champagne and lying by the pool. She attended all of the important events in town. She dressed to the nines and was said to be a very attractive woman, especially for her age. I hate to even say that because women of all ages are beautiful in their own way, but that's how she was described by those who knew her. People would whisper and gossip about several wealthy men that Ghislaine was rumored to be dating over the years, though no one would ever see her with any men. Her villa in France was called La Chamade, and it was an incredible property built in the mountainous Alps of Mougin. Omar would split his time between tending to Guilaine's garden and his first client, Madame Pascal. Gardening was only supposed to be a temporary gig until he could save up enough money to be financially secure in Morocco. However, he would meet and fall in love with a young woman named Latifa. 
Now the plan was to stay in France, marry Latifah, and begin a family. Even though he had two gardening jobs, money was still very tight. Gardening doesn't pay a whole lot. Omar and Latifah would move in with her parents, who lived about an hour away from where he worked, so that they could save up some money. At one point, her parents' home became a little too cramped and uncomfortable for the newlywed couple, so Ghislaine offered Latifah a position as a housekeeper and a place to stay in her home. Both Madame Pascal and Ghislaine were incredibly kind to Omar and his wife, acting almost like a second mother to them more than their employers. When Latifah became pregnant with their first child, the couple decided to move into their own home so that they could have some privacy away from their workplace and raise their child together. In 1991, when all of this happened, things were really looking up for Omar. At just 27 years old, he had a home to live in with his beautiful wife and baby, and he loved his gardening job. It was rumored that Omar may have had a difficult time with managing money, and possibly he had a gambling addiction, though his wife would say that he would never spend any money that they couldn't afford to lose. She would confirm that, yes, he enjoyed gambling, but he took care of his family first, and he would only gamble with his wins. It wasn't anything that was a big problem for their family. So now that we've set the scene for who the key players are, let's talk about the day that would change everything for Omar and Ghislaine. It was June 23rd, 1991. Ghislaine woke up, had a shower, and decided to crawl back into bed to read the newspaper and to eat her breakfast. At around 11.48 a.m., she had a phone conversation with her friend Erica. They had made plans to get together for lunch the following day. The conversation ended at around 11.50 a.m. as Ghislaine had to get up and get ready to go meet other friends for a birthday lunch that day. This would be the last time that anyone heard from Ghislaine as she would not make it to the luncheon. Of course, when she didn't show, her friends were worried about her and phoned to see if she was okay. However, there was no answer. One of her friends even goes as far as to show up at her front door, but again, the door goes unanswered. The following day, on June 24th, Erica showed up around noon for the lunch that was planned the previous day. She rang the doorbell of Ghislaine, and there was no answer. At this point, her absence was very much noticed, and her friends contacted her security team to ask them to perform a welfare check. When the team arrived, they found both the property gate and the front door unlocked with the house keys inside. The alarm was not engaged. There was a small gift sitting on the table at the entrance, likely the gift that she was going to be bringing to that birthday lunch that she missed. The house was very dark, with all of the lights turned off, and it was absolutely silent. As the security team walked through the home, they noticed that there was a breakfast tray with dirty dishes on it found in the sink. All of the blinds in the home were closed, except for the blinds in the master bedroom. Ghislaine's reading glasses and diary were found lying on her bed, which had not been made from the night before. From first appearances, it looked like she had woken up and had breakfast in a bed while she wrote in her diary, then she took the breakfast tray back to the kitchen and just simply disappeared from there. There was no sign of Ghislaine anywhere in the home or on the property, and it didn't appear as if anything was missing or that there had been a break-in. 
The whole house is searched throughout the day, and later in the evening, one of the staff remembers that there is an area of the home that had not been searched yet. It was the cellar door, which was locked from the outside. The likelihood of Ghislaine being found behind this locked door was very slim, but they had to make sure. They find the key to the cellar in a cigar box. They unlock the door and push it open, but it only opens about two centimeters, and it appears that something is pushing back against the door. When they push it a little harder, it opens and they find a large folding bed that's on wheels, which has been propped up against the door, as well as a metal pipe. Someone clearly did not want the person on the other side of this door getting through. The cellar was pitch black. On the floor right inside of the room was a large puddle of blood and the body of Ghislaine Marshall. She was wearing her nightgown, which was pulled up over her head, and she was naked from the waist down. She was also face down on the ground with her arms out above her. Strangest of all was a message written on a metal door that led to the wine cellar. It was written in blood, presumably Ghislaine's blood, and it was about one meter from the ground. It said, Omar Matue, roughly translating to Omar killed me. As security walked around, taking note of everything that they saw, they discovered more writing on another door, and it looked as if this was never finished. It said, Omar Ma, and a T, which presumably was supposed to be the same sentence that was written on the first door, but it was never finished. It looked like whoever had written the bloody message gave up and fell as they were writing it, streaking blood down the wall as they fell. Immediately, the number one question became, who is Omar? It didn't take long to figure out that the Omar in question was likely Omar Radad, the longtime gardener of the property. The day following the discovery on June 25th, Omar was arrested while he was celebrating Eid al-Adha, which is one of the biggest holidays celebrated in Islam. He went with the police without any protest, though he said he had no idea why he was being arrested. He kissed his wife goodbye as he was led into the police car and told his wife that he'd be back in a little bit. At the police station, he was photographed before being questioned. No scrapes or wounds were found on his body. In the interview room, he was described by Captain Sensi as being someone calm and thoughtful. He was shown photos of Ghislaine's battered body, as well as the writing in her blood left on the wall. The graphic images seemed to shock him, as Ghislaine was someone that he had been very close with. Omar told investigators that he would tell them whatever information that they needed to know. He said he loved Ghislaine, loved her as if she were a second mother to him, and he would never hurt her. But the police? Well, they weren't so sure. Omar had an alibi that he quickly provided to the police to prove his innocence. The day of the murder, Omar said he was working next door at Madame Pascal's garden. He didn't typically work on Sundays, but he needed the money, and by working on Sunday, he was able to take the holiday off on Monday. He left Madame Pascal's home around noon to grab some lunch, and he stopped in at a bakery to buy some bread at around 12.05 p.m. Then he drove around 5.5 kilometers to his house to eat his lunch. He said that when he arrived back at his house, his neighbor was also outside, and although they didn't engage in conversation, this neighbor did seem to see him so he could verify his whereabouts. 
Omar said that he went inside to eat his baguette with some cheese, and he watched TV while enjoying his lunch. Then he left to go back to work at around 12.40, arriving back at Madame Pascal's home at around 1.10 p.m. This was confirmed by Madame Pascal's daughter and son-in-law. He was an excellent worker and a kind boy, according to Madame Pascal. She confirmed that he returned after his lunch break to work, and there was nothing on his clothing that would indicate that he had murdered someone. He also wasn't acting any different or unusual. Finally, Omar said that he called his wife from a payphone. His wife was out of town at the time with the children, and he would give them directions to the payphone so that they could confirm this. This is what had been recorded and written down by investigators, but it should be noted here that there was a massive language barrier. Again, Omar hardly spoke any French at all. He spoke Arabic. Apparently, translating was so difficult that they had to utilize another prisoner at the jail who just so happened to speak both Arabic and French. My family is getting ready to make a big move across the ocean to a place where English isn't the spoken language. This isn't my first rodeo, so... I'm making sure I'm fully prepared by learning the language ahead of time. Sure, I know I can use an app once I get there, but you'd be shocked by how much gets lost in translation. I want to talk like a local, which is why I'm excited to use Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn and has been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Rosetta Stone helps you to think in the language you're learning using an intuitive process that's designed for long-term retention. Their built-in True Accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation so that you're easily understood by native speakers. They have convenient desktop and app options, so you can learn on the go, and they offer a lifetime membership that includes all 25 languages at an incredible value. And now you can save even more with 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Serial Napper listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Sunnier, warmer days are almost here. Why not get a head start on looking and feeling your best this summer by trying something new like Factors No Prep, No Mess meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes? Get a helping hand to meet your wellness goals with Factors Chef Crafted meals that include different nutritional options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Healthy meal planning has never looked so good with Factors Fresh, Never Frozen meals that are also dietitian approved. No matter how busy you are, Factor can help kickstart and maintain a new healthy routine by making it easy to enjoy nutritious meals on the go. 
Plus, you'll never get bored eating the same thing every day because they offer 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. We're talking restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon because eating healthy doesn't have to be boring. Personally, I love not having to overthink what I'm going to eat every single day because that's half the battle, and I don't have to bother with shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. But the best part is, these meals are delicious with ingredients you can trust. Crush your wellness goals this May. Head to factormeals.com slash napper50 and use code napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code napper50 at factormeals.com slash napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Omar would spend the night in jail. The next day, he went with the police back to his home to retrieve the clothing that he said that he was wearing the day that Ghislaine was murdered. They had not been washed yet, and the police wanted to have them tested. No blood would be found on the clothing or on the shoes that he was wearing. They released him from custody, leaving him at his home, and on the way back to the station, they decide to stop into the bakery that Omar had said that he had stopped for bread on the day of the murder. Unfortunately, no one working at the bakery remembered him ever being there, so this put a hole in Omar's alibi. The neighbor also reportedly did not remember seeing Omar come home for lunch, so again, another issue with Omar's alibi, and now the police are convinced that he is the one that killed Ghislaine. Omar gave the police directions to where the phone booth was located, the one that he had used to call his wife, and he estimated that he called around 12.45 p.m. According to data provided by France Telecom, there was a call placed at 12.51 to his in-law's home on that day. This proved that he was close to his home using that payphone at this time. However, the police were sure that he had killed Ghislaine, so they didn't pay a whole lot of attention to this detail. Omar was arrested and placed in custody and charged with the murder of Ghislaine Marshall on June 27th. Police believed that Ghislaine was likely killed for money. Omar needed money to fund his gambling habit, so he asked Ghislaine, and when she said no, he seemingly went into a fit of rage and killed her. Ghislaine's wallet was found in the home, but it was empty. This was strange because she had withdrawn 5,000 francs just two days before her murder, but nothing was found in her wallet, and the money wasn't found anywhere else in the house. This set the scene for a strong motive for money. Police believed that on the day in question, Ghislaine was to attend that birthday lunch with friends. In the morning, she went to the cellar to put on the pool cleaning system. Omar was on his lunch break and approached her to ask her for an advance on his paycheck. When she said no, he used a hedge trimmer to hit her. She ran into the cellar where she locked the door. Then she wheeled over the bed in front of the door and propped up the metal pipe. She knelt down on the floor and used her blood to scrawl her killer's name on the door. Then she went to the boiler room and wrote it again, and returned to the cellar where she laid down to die. Of course, this was only what the police envisioned happening. This was their theory. But there wasn't much evidence at all to make any conclusions. 
The following day, Ghislaine's autopsy results came back, and while it provided some answers, it also created many new questions. Whoever killed Ghislaine did so in a very angry and violent manner. She suffered blunt force trauma and had five large gaping wounds on her head. There was also a V-shaped wound on her throat. She suffered 10 wounds to both her chest and abdomen that were caused with a weapon that had a blade measuring between 15 and 20 centimeters long and 2 centimeters wide maximum. Three of these stab wounds pierced her liver. She had two wounds on her left thigh, and one of these wounds had a blood trail that dripped down to the floor, meaning that she was lying down when she received this wound. It was also very clear that Ghislaine had fought back as she had many injuries, bruising and fractures to her hands, and one of her fingers was almost torn off. Her body was covered in bruises and scratches. On her nightgown, there were traces of cement from the cellar floor and a bunch of dust, which indicated that she had likely been dragged. The medical examiner said that she had likely laid on the floor wounded for between 15 and 30 minutes before she would have died. Her time of death was estimated to be around noon, meaning that she would have been killed very shortly after hanging up the phone with her friend. Ghislaine was cremated just a few days after the autopsy was conducted, which stopped the defense team from being able to conduct any further tests. I'm really surprised that the courts and the judge allowed this to happen. Investigators weren't positive what was used to kill Ghislaine. They believed that the perpetrator had likely used a wooden beam to hit her in the head, but they weren't sure what they had used to stab her. The gardening shears were just a theory, but no weapon was found at the scene. Prosecutors were going to have a really hard time with this case. They didn't have any physical evidence tying Omar Radad to the scene of the crime. There weren't any liftable fingerprints at the crime scene, and there was no trace of Omar's presence found on the victim or in the cellar. The only thing that they really had was inconsistencies in his alibi and the message that was written in blood that named him as the killer. But Omar denied killing Ghislaine, and he believed that someone was likely just trying to frame him. The writing on the wall wasn't totally a smoking gun. There were some strange things about the message. The main one being the grammar. The sentence Omar Matue, Omar killed me, is not properly conjugated. It should have read Omar Matue, and I know that sounds exactly the same. I'm definitely not pronouncing these words properly. Even though I'm Canadian, my French is terrible, but I'm really trying my best here. Some people have taken issue with the misspelling because Ghislaine was known to be an avid reader and a writer. So would she have really misspelled this sentence? Several documents, including her diary, were examined to see how she would typically write. And at some points, she did make errors in her writing. So it's not impossible that she would make a mistake. But there are other issues with the bloody message. The prosecution brought in an expert witness who testified that a handwriting comparison was done and that it was most likely Ghislaine's handwriting. However, the defense team had their own expert witness who testified, and he said that it absolutely was not her writing. One of the biggest things that stuck out to me is if she's alive and writing on the wall with her blood, why would she write in the past tense as if she is dead? She wrote that Omar killed her, but she would have been alive at the time of writing it. Unless she knew that her injuries were so severe that she would likely die from them. But then again, why write the message twice? 
if Ghislaine had rewritten it, there wasn't any indication that she had dragged herself to the second door to write another message. From the way that her body was positioned with her gown up over her head and the blood dripping down to the floor, it looked as if she was dragged. So did Ghislaine really write the message or did the killer write it and try to frame Omar? No matter what, we know that Omar didn't write it because he is illiterate. There are also issues with the crime scene, so let's take a moment to talk about that. Ghislaine was found in the cellar, which is almost always locked, and the key was found in a cigar box. There was a bed frame and a metal rod pushed up against the door, which would make sense if she ran downstairs away from her attacker, shut the door, and propped up the items to keep them from getting in. This would also mean that Ghislaine was likely the only person in the cellar and that she locked herself inside when she was still alive. But then how did the key get back in the cigar box? Did someone set up the scene in the cellar and then put the key back away? And if she wrote the message herself, then laid down to die, why was her robe up around her head? She wouldn't have left it that way if she died down the cellar. She wouldn't have left her robe up exposing her bottom half. These are all very important questions that the prosecution didn't even bother to try to answer. In their eyes, Omar did this. It didn't matter if none of it made any sense. As you can imagine, this story blew up in the media. Everyone was talking about it. That bloody message written on the wall, the violent murder of a wealthy socialite, and all of the mysteries happening around what really happened to her. There were people who fully believed that Omar killed her, including Ghislaine's family. But there were also a lot of people who believed that Omar was innocent and was being treated unfairly due to racism in the court system. He was a poor immigrant, and he could hardly speak any French. Omar maintained his innocence, and he was being held behind bars without bail. So he burned a blanket in his cell in protest. He would be transported to a hospital for smoke inhalation and burns on his body, but he survived. Then he went without food for 36 days. He only ended his hunger strike because his father asked him to. He just wanted someone to listen to his pleas of innocence, but no one was listening. Thankfully, his pleas eventually did reach the media, and one journalist dug a little deeper than the police did. This journalist discovered that the police actually went to the wrong bakery to confirm Omar's alibi. Remember, Omar had said that he stopped at a bakery for a baguette for his lunch, but the baker had told the police that they didn't remember him being there. Well, according to this journalist, the police had actually gone to the wrong bakery. The right bakery, the one that Omar had actually visited that day, backed up his alibi and said that Omar was a frequent customer of his. He would also say that the police never came to question him about Omar. Again, none of this seemed to matter because even with very little evidence, the charges would stay. The prosecution maintained that Omar had killed Ghislaine over money, but the defense maintained Omar had no motivation for killing her. Omar always thought that Ghislaine treated him very kindly. If he would have asked her for money, she likely would have given it to him. Same with his other employer, Madame Pascal, so there was no reason to kill someone over money. In April of 1992, after being denied a release for the fifth time, Omar went on another hunger strike, this time lasting 25 days. 
While he was in custody, he was moved to another prison in Nice, and that apparently had unbearable conditions. Now, Omar felt completely helpless, so he tried to unalive himself by swallowing a razor blade. Thankfully, he survived when the guards found him in his cell and they were able to save him. However, only his life was spared. His freedom was about to be taken. On February 2nd, Omar Radad was convicted of the murder of Ghislaine Marshall and was sentenced to 18 years in prison. Many people believed that there was not enough evidence to convict Omar, and he was only found guilty due to racial and anti-immigration sentiments in France. Even throughout the trial, the judge would make comments about how he couldn't understand Omar when he was testifying. Two years into his sentence, Omar would be partially pardoned after growing pressure and frustration from the Moroccan government. It was only a partial pardon. He most definitely was not exonerated, which means that he can be retried for the murder at any time. This reduced his sentence by four years and eight months. Two years later, Omar was released for good behavior. He was also allowed to stay in France. However, he wasn't allowed to work as a gardener. Though technically a free man, he was still seen as very much a guilty man by much of the public in France. There are some other theories about who may be the killer, if not Omar. Ghislaine's maid would report a letter opener as missing. This could have been the weapon used to stab Ghislaine, but we don't know because it's never been found. The maid has another interesting connection, though, because there was another prisoner behind bars for an unrelated crime who admitted to the murder of Ghislaine. It just so happened to be Ghislaine's maid's boyfriend. As the rumors go, the maid was reportedly fired after Ghislaine found a substantial amount of money missing. So the maid's boyfriend decided to break in as retaliation and steal the money back. Ghislaine was supposed to be at that birthday party, which the maid would have known. However, for whatever reason, Ghislaine was home at the time. So perhaps the boyfriend panicked and killed her and then tried to frame Omar. Allegedly, there's also another Omar in Ghislaine's life. They were reportedly seen together in front of a casino shortly before the murder. However, that Omar was questioned and no charges were brought forward, so kind of seems like a dead end. There was also a witness who reported seeing a van parked outside of her home in the area that appeared to be abandoned. When she peered inside the window, she thought she saw traces of blood inside and wooden boards. A few days later, the van was gone. The owner of the van was identified, and it turned out to be a man who just worked as a carpenter and a painter, and he claimed it was actually just red paint in his van, not blood, and this lead wasn't really explored any further than that. Thankfully, after Omar's release, the investigation has continued. In January of 2001, the wooden beams that were used to hit Ghislaine as well as the doors that had the writing on it were analyzed and two male DNA profiles were created. Neither of these DNA profiles match anyone in the current system, including Omar. In 2016, new testing was done and four male DNA profiles were found. Again, no trace of Omar's DNA has been found anywhere on the victim or in the cellar. In June of 2021, Omar requested a new trial, which is amazing. He obviously wants his name cleared once and for all if he didn't do it. We'll find out on October 13th if he's going to be granted a new trial. 
His lawyer wants to do more testing on the unknown DNA that was found at the scene to see if there are any familial matches in the database. And I absolutely love this idea. I love that they're using this technique to find killers who might not be in the police database. I'm all for it. I've done those DNA testing kits. If my uncle or whatever is a killer, lock him up. I don't care. Hell, the Golden State Killer was finally identified this exact way. And that's where we're at with this case. Gillian's murder happened back in the 90s, but we've come a long way in forensic science and technology and DNA testing. I hope to God that this case is reopened and a new trial is granted. Not only for Omar, but for Ghislaine. If Omar is innocent, he should have his name cleared. He was allegedly very close to Ghislaine. There's no way that she would want him sitting behind bars if he's an innocent man. And her family should want all of those answers as well. In my opinion, Omar should have never been charged to begin with. There's not even close to enough evidence there to convict someone of murder, and there are far too many unanswered questions. It can't be that easy to frame someone else for murder simply by writing their name out in the victim's blood, can it? That's it for me tonight. If you want to reach out, you can find me on Facebook at Serial Napper. You can also search for me on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check me out on Twitter at Serial underscore Napper, or I'm here on YouTube, Nikki Young, Serial Napper, and that's all one word. Until next time, stay safe, stay kind, especially in the comments. Bye. I'm Dean, I'm the dad. I'm Laura, I'm the mom. And I'm Crystalyn, I'm the daughter. And together we are... Family Plot! The Family Plot Podcast, a show where we discuss history, folklore, true crime, and the paranormal. Minus all the oogie bits. We are PG-13. I'm almost 15 now. Don't ruin the commercial. Catch us looking into special topics like the origins of fairy tales, Sherlock Holmes, and the trial of Dr. Hyde and Mr. Swope. Find out who Dad Man Crush is. Or what happens in Krista's corner. But behave, you two. So come be a part of the fam. Available on Google, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Family Plot Podcast. Bye!